Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. As a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together, we hope that these messages inspire and equip you for the journey of faith in everyday life. You know, there are always, there are always things that churches do that kind of seem, I would say, strange to outsiders, especially if you have no background. Um, a few weeks ago, Justin preached on baptism, and he talked about, you know, from the perspective, if you're an outsider of Christianity or you just have really no background in it, the idea of this really important ceremony where a bunch of people surround somebody, you dunk them underwater, bring them back up, and everyone cheers, they're like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> uh, com- we're going to talk about communion today, and I think... Communion is way weirder than baptism to an outsider, where you try to figure out what exactly is going on. You know, if you had no background in, in, in Christianity, I think uh, communion would be a very strange thing. And in the first and second centuries, the uh, Christianity was a small, misunderstood kind of religious minority in the Roman Empire. And so much of what they did was completely understood by the culture around them. Um, did you know... That in the first and second centuries in, in, the, in the empire, that there was a rumor that because of communion, that Christians were cannibals. Like it was a legit rumor that was going on Christians were cannibals. They were also thought to be atheists because they rejected all of the gods of Rome. Um, they're accused of incest because they called each other brother and sister in Christ. There was all these things that, uh, you know, they were, they were, they were accused of. And it just goes to show that misinformation has been a problem long before Twitter and social media. Um, today, what we're going to do though, we're going to learn about what the Bible has to say about communion and Jesus' command for his followers to regularly participate in it. And, and I was thinking through my approach because for some of you, communion is something you've practiced for a long time. Others, you might be newer to it. And so I'm really going to answer five key questions this morning to help you understand communion or maybe you've heard it called the Lord's Supper. And they're this. Uh, one, what are the origins of communion? Where did it come from? What does communion mean for us now? Why do we take communion? How are you to take communion and who should take communion. Those are really the five big things I want to answer this morning because this is one of the things that Jesus has commanded his followers to do. So we're in a series right now, if you've been with us, called Practicing the Way, you know, uh, following and obeying the ways of Jesus. And think of this series sort of as a primer for both what it means to follow Jesus, but to kind of answer the question, what are Christians called to do? You know, we talk about different things. What are Christians called to believe or what is Jesus like? But what we're doing is we're taking a, a snapshot of the early church, which is Acts chapter 2, or the pastor using Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 47. We're looking at, you know, what do we see the early church doing and why? And what does that mean for us today? So the first thing we looked at in the commands of Christ that we've started our series off is the simple command to repent and believe the good news. That is always kind of the opening call of Jesus, to repent and believe the good news. And then we looked at that one of the first acts of obedience for a follower of Jesus is to get baptized. Baptism being an outward public symbol of what has happened to you internally. Two weeks ago, we looked at the call to gather, why it's so important for Christians to come together. You know, there are 59 different one another commands in the New Testament. And basically, the entire Christian life assumes 
you have a regular group of followers of, of Christians that you're living those out with. Really, none of the letter, almost none of the New Testament makes sense without that in place. Last week, we looked at the, at the command to give and what it means to be generous. And in this week, as I said, we're looking at communion or the Lord's Supper. So let me read again Acts chapter 2, verses, I'm just going to read 42 through 47. If uh, you're into memorizing scripture, or even if you're not, this is a very, you know, this is a simple passage to memorize, and we're going to read it like 15 weeks in a row. So just by <laughs> osmosis, it might just, it might just sink in. But let me read to you again. Um, and each week we're looking at a different aspect of it. This is verses 42 to 47. And they, being the early gathered church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And when it says to the breaking of bread, that is both talking about how they took communion or practiced the Lord's Supper together and how they regularly ate together. Uh, their you know, early church services often were a meal. Uh, it wasn't like a potluck where you did it after. Often some of the early gatherings happened around a meal. And prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You know, what, what a picture of, of this early church community in action. And so the first question, again, we're, we're going to look at is, what are the origins of communion? Because the pattern we see is that the early church took communion together regularly. And communion comes out of the Jewish Passover. So the Jewish Passover, it was kind of the highlight of the Jewish calendar and commemorated Israel's escape from Egyptian slavery. So if you want to read about that later, that's in Exodus 12, was the first Passover. And so if you're unfamiliar with the story, I'll just give you a really quick summary. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God appoints Moses to go to Pharaoh and ask for the release of all the Egyptian slaves, which would have been a laughable request. You know, Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. Most of the, uh, a lot of the Egyptian economy was built on the back of Jewish slaves. There was no way he was going to acquiesce to that request. And so uh, there's, there was a series of nine plagues, all kind of lining up with one of the Egyptian gods or deities, showing that Yahweh was the one true God. And after each plague, instead of that softening Pharaoh's heart, it was a progressive series of Pharaoh's heart hardening and hardening and hardening. And so there was told there would be one final plague, one that would rock all of Egypt. One that, again, if you're unfamiliar with the story, is going to sound incredibly harsh to modern ears. But you also must remember that about the horrors that the Egyptians afflicted on the Israelites. You know, one point in the early in, in the story, fearing that the Israelites were growing too strong in number, this is what Pharaoh commanded. He said, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile and let the daughters live. So oftentimes when we see, especially judgments, and with the, with the Israelites, it's, it's equal in a sense to what was being done to uh, the, the Hebrews. But this is what the, the final um, judgment was going to be. This is Exodus 12, 12. It says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, 
And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And when you see the Lord in all caps, that's the translation of uh, Yahweh, of God's, of God's personal name. But in this first Passover, there was one provision given. The Israelites were told to take a lamb, one without spot or blemish. And on the night that the angel of death was going to go over the land, they were to have a meal. And they were to have that lamb for dinner. And then they were to take some of, some of its blood, and they were supposed to put it over the kind of the doorposts of their house. And in every household that did that, that was, that you hear, heard the phrase that was covered by the blood of the lamb, the angel would pass over and the firstborn would be spared. And that's exactly what happened that night. God provided a substitute and all those whose houses were covered by the blood of the lamb were saved from this judgment. And God commanded the Israelites to remember how he provided for their salvation from slavery by the yearly celebration of Passover. So that is, that is the roots of, of communion. It ties back to this original, uh, this original thing. And so when we look at what does communion mean for us now, when we look at the time of Jesus, it's, it's hard to fully put a firm date on it. But many scholars believe there's about 1,500 years between that first Passover and the time of Jesus. You know, give or take uh, some time on, on either end of it. We'll just we'll, we'll meet in the middle. 1,500 years. So the, so the Jewish people for 1,500 years had regularly been celebrating, had been remembering how God had saved them, the provision that he had, that he had given them, and how, how he had rescued them out of slavery. And at the time of, of Jesus, the Jewish people, they found themselves in a similar situation to back in Egypt. And while it was not full-on Egyptian slavery, they found themselves as subject to the Roman Empire. They found themselves not free. They weren't, again, they weren't slaves, but they were subjugated by a foreign empire, and nationalistic fever was in the air. Hope for a Messiah, for a second Moses, was just at an all-time high. Someone who would lead them to freedom, that was at a fever pitch. So you kind of understand you know, the, the, the Passover that Jesus is celebrating it has this whole backstory to it. And people were waiting and waiting for this Messiah who, like Moses, would free them and lead them and, and restore sort of the, the, the promises of the promised land. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and handed over the authorities, he was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And each part of this meal was just chocked full of significance. Especially when I, when I read some of the festivals and the celebrations that God gave to the people of Israel. What I love so much about them is how much they involve your senses, how much they involve things that you do to help you remember. You know, they had this one, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, where they're called to make temporary shelters, almost set up tents and stay in them for 40 days to remember the 40 years they spent in the wilderness. There was all sorts of things like this. And for the Passover meal, there was parts of the meal that held, had big significance. So they would have unleavened bread, which reminded them of the, that night that, you know, the, the Israelites had unleavened bread because there wouldn't be time for it to rise because they had eaten haste. You know, they would, they were supposed to have, uh, bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery. There was a Passover lamb and there was also four cups of wine that were consumed at different parts of the meal. So this is, this is the, this is the setting of it. So at this Passover, the one that Jesus celebrated right before his death, Jesus assumes the role of the host that evening. And he does it with a twist. 
And he, and he shows how this entire meal, everything the Jewish people have been practicing for 1,500 years, was all leading to him. So let me read to you Matthew chapter 26, uh, 26 through 29. And as I was thinking as leading up to this, there's, there's almost no way I can convey the significance of what Jesus says here, how it would have been heard by his first disciples. Because we're not, you know, first century Jews steeped in years and years of tradition of looking forward. But this would have been shocking to these disciples. This is what he said. So now as they were eating, Jesus, as the host of the meal, took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So when Jesus took the bread and broke it, what he was saying is that this bread represents my body that is about to be broken for you. And his body was going to be the once for all fulfillment of the ceremony surrounding the Passover lamb. And it's interesting that he uses the bread and not the lamb to represent his body. Because he, because we, you see communion isn't, there's, there's no, there's no lamb. Because Jesus was our once for all lamb. And, and, and there's this great moment, you know, in, in John's gospel talking about what Jesus was going to do. In John chapter 1, verse, verse 29, John, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and he says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, he sees Jesus, and he says, basically, Behold the once for all perfect Passover sacrifice, the, 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 the Lamb who is going to die in our place for the, forgiveness of, for, for the forgiveness of sins. He looks at Jesus and says that. And because of this, the killing of the lamb would no longer be necessary. And then Jesus takes the cup, which was most likely the third cup of the meal. The third cup was traditionally called the cup of redemption. So this is, again, this meal, this meal was packed with significance. And right before the third cup was taken, often Exodus 6.6 6 would be read, where God said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So he's saying, I will, my blood shed for you. When you take this, you are remembering my redemption. And so through the Passover meal, Jesus was showing how his upcoming death was going to be the ultimate act that would bring people release from the slavery of sins and make a way for our sins to be forgiven. That's, that's what he was, was saying here. But he also makes a strange promise. You know, he says right at the end, he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And what this means is he most likely means he did not drink the fourth cup. And so the fourth cup of communion is one that looked forward. So what Jesus is saying here is like the fourth cup, you would read this promise. I will take you as my own, as my own people. So there's something special about communion that both looks back at what Jesus has done and looks ahead to his second coming. Jesus is saying here that his death and resurrection will bring about the forgiveness of sins, that he will go away, but he also gives us the assurance that he will one day return. 
And when he returns, he will finally establish his kingdom and fullness on earth. That's, that's what he's saying, that's what he's saying right there. At the time, he's looking ahead to two things. But when we take communion, we look back at what Jesus has done for us. But we look ahead to when he will finally make all things right and establish, fully establish his kingdom on earth. So our third question, why? Why do we take communion? Uh, it's almost as simple as <laughs> Jesus told us to. Uh, but you know, baptism and communion, they're two ordinances that Jesus instituted and established for the church to participate in. So think of an ordinance as just a prescribed practice. So I guess it's as simple as our Lord Jesus told us to take communion. That is why we do it. But here's another reason, and I believe one of the reasons why he told us to keep it central. Because communion keeps the cross and the gospel central. You know, every time we take communion together, we remember and rehearse what Jesus has done for us. It forces us to remember how costly it was for us to be reconciled to God. That it took the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. It helps keep the main thing the main thing. But it also, I feel like, protects the church from turning into a self-improvement society. It helps the church, it protects us from thinking that we have the ability to improve ourselves. To take communion is very humbling. Because when you come forward and you participate in the broken body and the shed blood, what you were saying to yourself and everybody around you was, it took the blood of Jesus. It took the death of the Son of God to reconcile me back to him. That should dissuade us of any notion that all we have to do is try hard enough to clean ourselves up. That growth in Christ's likeness is just a like self-discipline. It keeps the main thing the main thing. So a fourth important question then is, how are we to take communion? How are we to take it? And I think the first thing that we see also in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 is that we are called to examine ourselves and confess our sins before we take it. You know, it is necessary, I think, to take some time to reflect on where you're at. We you usually have that built in. While we have a song, you get to come forward, and we have that spot built in where you can just take some time of reflection. Of is there is there any sin in my life that I need to confess before I take it? Are there areas of my life where I'm just not trusting Jesus? I need to pray to Him, ask Him for the strength to to trust Him. You know, where do I find myself weak and struggling? You know, take that to Jesus in prayer. You know, when we have a built in, we're going to have an extended time of that this morning built in. It's a good practice to do right before, but we take we participate in communion together on the first of the month. It's also a great practice to do before you come, the night before, that morning in reflection. The second thing that you do before communion is it's, I think it's important to repent to others if necessary. If you have, uncon- or if there's something between you, especially you and another Christian, that's causing conflict, you should settle that and resolve that before you take communion. I remember it was several years ago, um, I was really mad at one of my coworkers. Really mad. And it made it awkward, it wasn't, it wasn't here, I mean awkward, we were both pastors at, a, at the church together. And it was a communion Sunday, and I felt that he had slighted me in some way, and I just couldn't let it go. It was really bugging me. And I'm like sitting here, and he's like, there. And I'm trying to sing, and I can't even worship that morning, because all that's going through my mind is, 
can't believe I have to look at your stupid face all morning. Oh, boy. I was so... It was, it was, it was not good. <laughs> and it just was building in me that whole morning. And so in the time we got to communion, and, and I was just like, I can't do it. I can't take it. My heart is not right. I am too angry. So what I had to do is between services, luckily it was, it was an extra chance, I had to, it was kind of awkward. I'd be like, hey, we need to talk. I'm like, it, it was almost awkward because he had no clue. I was like, we need to talk. Like, I'm really mad at you right now. And I, I am angry, and I need to confess my sin to you. Uh, but also I need to tell you what you did that really bothered me. Um, but, and it was, it wasn't this like beautiful moment. It was kind of awkward. Uh, but I felt like I had to do that because I was just really holding this against him. But there was something in all its awkwardness and all its non-perfection that was freeing. And I felt like the next service I was able to worship. I was able to take communion. Uh, but I had to do that first because I was seriously blocking uh, my ability. Uh, so whoever you're really mad at this morning, make sure you pull them aside after the service and you stay for the second one. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just, you don't have to do that. But, uh, but I say that in all seriousness, that there is this call to examine ourselves and to not take this lightly. And I won't impose that. Everyone has to do what I did. Um, but I don't think if you, if you ever are doing it, you're, you'll regret it. And the third thing, the reason why we take communion is we do it in remembrance. We take communion, and when we do, we remember our own exodus. We remember how Christ has saved us from the slavery to our own sins. Because before we know Jesus, we were both we were slaves and captives to sin. We needed rescue, we needed reconciliation, and our salvation came through the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb. God provided the way of escape, and we have stepped into it. Now, my final question is, who should take communion? I think communion, like baptism, is for all believers, but believers only. I think communion is something for all believers, but believers only. And here's why. Because when you come forward, it's an act of saying, I have placed my faith in Jesus. This is what I am trusting him for my eternity. And if that's not you, I'm, I'm super glad you're here. Feel no, there's no public pressure to come forward. Um, do not feel that at, at all. Uh, I would encourage you to take some time to contemplate maybe what's holding you back. Because Jesus has forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life on offer. One of the greatest things you can do is say yes to that. So now that I've answered five questions, I want to ask you two. Ask each one of you two questions. And the first is this. Have you trusted Jesus with your eternity? Like, have you? You know, it is, your, is the story told through the Lord's Supper, through communion, your story? Because I think that the Exodus is a beautiful picture of what this looks like. You know, God is the one that provided the means of salvation. You know, the, the Israelites, nobody did any works, no one did anything to add to it. But they still had, in faith, they still had to put the blood over their doorposts. They still had to show their, their faith in, in, in some way. And I think it's similar for us of what does it mean for Jesus to be our savior? You know, it's not just believing he existed or liking that he's, he's a good teacher or liking his community. It involves placing your faith in him. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus. 
I would love to talk with you about that. You know, that we have, if, if, if it's daunting even to come out after we have these connect cards, just write your, write your name down. Say, I want to talk. Love to get a cup of coffee, do it in a different setting, to talk to you about what it means to place your faith in Jesus. But if we confess their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the promise is, you will be saved. And the second question I want to ask is this. Not only is, have you trusted Jesus for your eternity, but is Jesus Lord over your life? Is Jesus Lord over your life? You know, I, I learned something interesting this week about, about Judas. Because yeah, it always amazed me. How could someone who spent so much time with Jesus betray him like that? Like how? how? I mean, could you imagine spending three years seeing, seeing Jesus do everything he did and betraying him? And here's one thing I learned. Jesus, a Judas is recorded as calling Jesus teacher or rabbi, but never Lord. And whether he did or not, I don't know, but it's never shown in scriptures. Always teacher, rabbi, but never Lord. And when Jesus is merely a teacher, you know, we can pick and choose what we want. But when Jesus is Lord and involves this act of surrender uh, that goes far beyond often what we're comfortable with, the call Jesus says, you know, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. You know, I, I heard an illustration about this this week that really challenged me. That I was like, man, whew. Um, it, was, it, was, it was in a book I was reading. And it said, okay, imagine yourself having a conversation with Jesus. You're having a conversation with Jesus. And he hands you a piece of paper. And he says, hey, uh, this, is, this is the contract for what I, for, I, for what I want you to do today. Are, uh, if you're willing to do it, will you sign it? And you look at the piece of paper and you're like, well, it's blank. Like, I don't want to sign this till I see the terms. And Jesus responds and says, no, my child, you don't understand. To truly surrender yourself to me is to sign it before you know the terms. Like, do you trust me? Because often we're going to want to see the terms. And then we can adjust. We can negotiate. We can figure out what parts we want to follow, what parts are not. But Jesus says, no. Like, do you trust me enough to sign this? Knowing that I love you, knowing that what I have is best. Listen, no one is ever going to love you as much as God does. No one wants your best more than Jesus. You know, there's this, there's this song that's called I Surrender All. It's this old hymn. Maybe you've sung it before and it just says, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely live. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. We hope this message has been impactful. For more information about how you can connect with Elm City Church, visit elmcitychurch.com or follow us on social media. We'd love to help you take some next steps.